Hey everyone, my name is Gates. And I'm Kelsey. And welcome to Killer Country. Michigan. Michigan. We are in Michigan, I should say. We have traveled to the Midwest officially. <laughs> Back where we're comfortable. So, much. <laughs> so um, I know that this is not going to be released until like mid-April. Yes. Or no, 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 mid-March, mid-March. Yes, but, that's next. March is next. <laughs> yes, March is next. Well, I have like February and March up there, like on my um, calendar. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I was like, okay, this February, March, the next month is going to be April, like, because <laughs> it's like going off of my calendar now. Yeah. But um, so there is a lot of debate right now about the Super Bowl. And Midwestern people are posing the question is it, oh, there goes gravity? Or is it, oh, there goes gravity. Oh. It, it's totally oh. oh. There, like, yeah. I heard oh. Eminem say oh. Like, 100%. There was a P in there. Like, oh, there goes gravity. Yeah. Oh, there goes gravity. Yeah. Uh-huh. It's oh. Yes. We yeah. solved it on Killer Country. Yes. You're welcome. You're very welcome. <laughs> it is oh. It will always be oh. My husband made fun of me whenever I first met him because I would say, oh, like it would be a, an inside joke between him and his friends every time that I said, oh, and uh, after about four or five months of us dating, I noticed that he started saying, oh, mm-hmm. so my Midwestern slang That's right. rubbing off on him or it did. That's rub right. Off I, I always get such a kick. Like if I travel home. Nobody says that I have a Southern accent. And if I'm here, nobody says I have a Midwestern accent. But if I'm in Minnesota, they're like, well, you don't sound Minnesotan anymore. And in the South, they're like, well, you don't sound Southern. I'm like, I just don't belong. (laughs) I don't belong anywhere. (laughs) There needs to be like a club for Midwestern Southern transplants. Uh, I agree. Maybe we can make a Facebook group. <laughs> yes. My stepmom, she um, she always instilled in us not to have an accent. So whenever like certain, like I will try to in certain situations not mm-hmm. have an accent come out. But of course, whenever you're tired, whenever you're angry, like yeah. your accent is just like tenfold. Yeah. So like I try not to have an accent, but I still say warsh. <laughs> you do say warsh. <laughs> makes fun of me. I have a little bit of um, news. It's not really, I mean, it is a crime, but I mean, it's good news. So in 2019, let me get the date for you. It was, let's see, I believe July of 2019, a four-year-old named Paisley Schultes was reported missing from her home Mm -hmm. and um, she was just found on February 14th. The New York State Police investigators entered the home, and it the home is owned by her non-custodial um, parent. So mm-hmm. parents must be divorced. This is the parent that did not have custody of her, and they found her alive under the stairs. 
they had created her alive. Yeah. But this parent had created like a Harry Potter closet. Excuse me. And they, the police did a full investigation. We're searching the house. They had a warrant and the police officer shined his light. And like he said, the stairs just didn't look right. And so when he shined his light, he saw a blanket and they pulled back a board and saw her little feet. And that's how they knew she was under there. That's so so good that they found her. I know. I don't, I mean, I don't think that they were keeping her under there like the whole three years she's been missing, but um, Mm -hmm. definitely like whenever police had gone over there multiple times to look for her um, because I guess they suspected this parent the whole time and they finally found her. So she is home, was reunited with her sister. Good. I So um, I was scrolling through, like, trying to find that story as well. Mm-hmm. And the entire time that I heard it, I thought that it was, like, you know how Harry Potter has, like, that little door? I thought that it was just, like, a little paneling on the side of the staircase. Oh, no. It was, like. It was one of the steps in the yes, staircase. Yes. Like, they had to pry up the steps, the wooden steps. And she was under there, and they said that um, the blankets and clothes she was wearing were wet. So I don't know if it was leaking or what, what the case was, but. She's, she's home found. safe. Yes. And that's what's important. That is definitely what is important. All right. So, so you are, tell me, you're in East Lansing? East Lansing. Okay. And I'm in Okamas. So you are first today. I'm first, <laughs> like always. <laughs> I'm going to get you one of these one times. Day. I think I get you in Minnesota. We do. You do. <laughs> but I didn't know if we were going to say that we knew. I'm not telling them where we're going, but. Yeah. <laughs> So I'm going to be in East Lansing, Michigan, and I am so sorry if I sound like extra congested today. There's, we're supposed to have like a high today or tomorrow of like 74 mm-hmm. and then a low in the twenties. Yeah. So wreaking havoc on all Alabamians at the moment. Yes. There's a reason why this area is called Valley of the Sickness by the Native Americans. Yeah. It's, it's us. <laughs> <laughs> Although our COVID cases are going down. So that's good. I don't get out of the house, you know, other than to go to the hospital. <laughs> and even whenever I do get out of the house, like I don't get out of my car. Like I have groceries delivered to my back seat. Yeah. So I'm with you. Yes. But today I am taking us to East Lansing, Michigan. The area is a residential and university city, and it was originally known as Collegeville, but it was redesignated as East Lansing in 1907. And this is the same time that it really becomes its own city. The city's economy re- oh. the city's economy revolves around the university and that's their major employer for the area of East Lansing. And this is such a college town that literally the first seven mayors of East Lansing were employed by the college in some shape or form. Oh wow, so everybody <laughs> all police officers everybody worked for the college. <laughs> Basically, yeah, like you don't live in East Lansing without going to the college <laughs> or like working at the college. The college of course is known as MSU Michigan State University and it's formally called the Agricultural College of the State of Michigan and they are members of the Big 10 Conference. And the Big Ten Conference was originally universities located in the Midwest, but it now also includes some colleges stretching out to the Atlantic Ocean. Hmm. MSU, surprisingly, um, MSU is one of the largest universities in the United States. That is something that I learned. Of course, I learned everything on this case because I (laughs) did not know this person, but I did not realize that 
MSU is one of the largest universities here in the United States. I didn't either. And well, I guess I'm, um, I mean, there's a lot of Michigan State fans. So there are a lot. Like whenever I was writing this, I kept typing in MSU, and in my head, I was saying Missouri State University because that's where that's I live in Springfield. Yeah. Um, we like, call the college I graduated from was MSU for a long time, Minnesota State University, and then they changed it to MNSU, but it's still uh-huh. forever MSU to me. Yes, <laughs> go Mavs. And that's that's just because we have. So many states that start with a freaking letter M. I know. I love it. <laughs> the U.S. News and World Report ranks MSU's graduate programs as the best in the United States in elementary and secondary teachers education, industrial and organizational psychology, rehabilitation counseling, African history, supply chain logistics, and nuclear physics. So they are have a ton of number ones there. The population at the near the time of our case is about 50,677 people. And the population in 2021, according to the projections of the latest U.S. Census Bureau, estimates is 48,991. So just a little bit of a dip, but we have to keep in mind it's college. Like it's a college town that is their population. Every year is every year is different. Yes. So I want to talk about the victims first. Okay. So we're going to go ahead and start with Miss Martha Sue Young. After graduating from high school, she shortly attended school in Texas where her father lived, but she did eventually decide to move back to where she grew up uh, in East Lansing. That's when she transferred from her Texas school to Michigan State University, where she majored in French, which I did not know you could major in foreign languages, but I thought it was really cool. That is cool. So she was a very religious woman, and upon returning to East Lansing, she resumed a friendship that she had with a man that she knew from high school, or I guess a boy. It's weird to call this guy a man. (laughs) Okay. We We can call him monster. Oh. Instead of a man. So their friendship blossomed into a relationship after a while, and they began dating. And the couple, whenever they spent time, mainly went to church activities together, or they would watch movies at one another's house. But they didn't really get out to socialize much. And Martha Sue wanted the full college experience. She wanted to be able to go to parties and to meet new people. But after a while, she realized that her boyfriend was becoming more controlling and he was not fun to be around anymore. And he didn't want to go out and hang out with people. Like he just wanted to stay in and keep her in. That's so, lame. <laughs> it's very lame. Like I'd be Nick, like that. Nick is an antisocial person. Like he is an introvert, like through and through. You get but a couple beers in that guy and he does just fine. Dude, yes. <laughs> Absolutely. But the thing is like I, I'll usually have to drag him to social gatherings mm-hmm. but he knows that I'm a little bit more of a social person mm-hmm. and so every weekend he's like oh what are you gonna do like do you want to like are you going to go out are you gonna go out with the girls like what are you doing yeah and I'll be like oh no like I'm just planning on you know reading finishing out the series or blah 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 and he's like are you sure you don't want to go out like <laughs> you're always happy when you go out <laughs> I'm like but that's a supportive person yeah versus a controlling douche nozzle right And literally to all of Martha's friends' surprise, whenever her boyfriend proposed to her, she said yes. Martha. 
and you know, at the time she's 19, we have to keep in mind. And at first she was very excited about being engaged and this new relationship, like this new level to her relationship with the man. But after the initial high of the engagement wore off, she started to have her doubts. Then she started to worry about their relationship. She noticed that his father did not treat his wife well. And she was concerned that her boyfriend would, you know, learn from his father and treat her the same way that his mother was treated. Which is not a bad assumption a it lot of times. No. Not in all cases, but mm-hmm. a lot of times. Yeah. It Well, I mean, honestly, it's going to turn out one of two ways. Either he's going to be exactly like his father mm-hmm. or he's going to say, you know, I watched these things that my father did and mm-hmm. I do not want that for myself. I do not want that type of relationship. That's what we hope. That's what we mm-hmm. hope for. We do. And like I had mentioned earlier, she noticed that while she loved to be social and hang out with her friends, her fiance did not. And the more she thought about it, the more she thought that it seemed like he just didn't have any friends. In fact, uh, one of the stories that I had read about, she went with her fiance to his best friend's house so he could ask him to be the best man for their wedding. And when Martha Sue's fiance asked him to be his best man, the guy was genuinely surprised because they hadn't seen or spoken to each other in three years. What? Yeah. That's so weird. Like, it's- you don't just show up at somebody's house and be like, hey, bro, I haven't talked to you in three years. You want to be my best man? Yeah. it's <laughs> not that, how that works. That's what this guy did. And so, like, it was at that point where she was kind of like, eh. So she decided that she would break off their engagement, but she did already promise him that she was going to go to his birthday party with his family. So she decided to wait to break off the engagement until after his birthday. Okay. It was after that that she told him that she no longer wanted to get married and she tried to give him back the ring, but he refused it saying, you know, this is a gift to you. And they talked about it and they agreed to remain friends. His birthday was December 28th, and two days after ending their engagement, on New Year's Eve in 1976 was the last time that she was seen. Her ex-fiance begged her to go out with him that day on New Year's Eve, and she had not been seen after that. She was reported missing on January 1st, 1977. And whenever police investigated the ex-fiance, he claimed that he had dropped her off at her front doorstep the night before. But, you know, he's obviously still the prime suspect. Like, you always look at the husband. You always look at the boyfriend. Mm -hmm. You always look at the person closest. And even though this man agreed to polygraphs, uh, all the polys came back as deceptive. But they couldn't find any physical evidence to link him to her disappearance, so they couldn't charge him. Mm -hmm. Then we'll go ahead and talk about the second victim. Her name is Marita Chiquette. She went on a date with a young man on June 14th, 1978. And after they went out to breakfast one morning, she just disappeared. At the time that she went missing, she was 27. And she was the editorial assistant for a local TV station that was located on campus. And she resembled Martha so much. They both were the same height. They were the same weight. They had the same wavy shoulder length brown hair. And they also both wore dark framed glasses. Hmm. Immediately after she went missing, they started to kind of link those two cases together. 
even though it was a little over a year mm-hmm. between the two disappearances. Yeah, still close enough. Mm-hmm. And it's in, you know, a small college town. So uh, two weeks after she had gone missing, about two weeks later, a farmer was clearing rocks in his field and dumping them by a group of trees when he noticed a disgusting, a foul odor. Mm. At first, he thought that it was a dead animal, but then he noticed a pile of bricks that hadn't been there before. He went to go check out the bricks, and that's when he noticed the maggots. So he started to move the bricks whenever he just saw a decaying human skull. And it was at this point that he called the police. When the police got there, they moved the bricks off the body and noticed that she was nude from the waist up and that her hands were severed. Like she did not have her hands on or near her. Once they were able to process the body, they were able to identify her as Marita. And of course, I don't have much of like, that's all the information that I could find on her. Mm -hmm. Like this case took me a lot longer than it, traditionally takes me on cases just because there's so much about the man in the case. Mm -hmm. There's not much about the victims. That's too bad. Now the first, the third, the third victim that we have is Wendy Bush. She was described as a happy gregarious co-ed who loved to make new friends. And just like the first two victims, Wendy, Wendy came from a religious background and she attended MSU in some way, shape, reform the day that marita's body was found by the farmer it was june 27th 1978 that's the day that wendy went missing and she was 21 years old at the time wendy was last seen walking on campus where she was approached by a car near the mun ice arena a man in the car asked her if she needed a ride and because she was so gregarious and she loved to make new friends she had absolutely no problem accepting a ride from the man He drove her to Case Hall where she lived and they sat and talked to each other for a while. The man does not understand the difference between seduction and niceties. And like we had said about this girl, she loved to make new friends. Mm -hmm. He assumed that her being nice to him meant that uh, she was trying to seduce him. So. Nope, that's not the same thing. Women are allowed to be nice to men. Yeah. We, we can <laughs> be nice if we want to, but that does not mean that we're trying to get into your pants. And uh, because he thought she was trying to seduce him and he was a good religious man, he started to strangle her. Oh. She fought as long as she could against her attacker, but at the end of the day, he was stronger and she could not fight him off. So she did end up dying. So not... Um, excuse me, I'm not interested in a relationship. Here, let me strangle you. Yeah, no, it's, um, excuse you, 21-year-old, for trying to seduce me with your villainous womanly ways. Let me just freaking off you. Villainous womanly ways. (laughs) I forgot the word seductress for a second. (laughs) But... Yeah, so she was being nice. He thought that she was coming on to him, so he killed her. Stupid. And this man drove around for 30 minutes with her dead body in the front seat next to him. Why? Until he found a place to dispose her body. And then we'll go ahead and talk about 
Miss Christine Stewart next. So Christine was known as Chris to her family, and she was the eldest of seven children. I was able to find the most information about her. She graduated from Port Huron Catholic High School in 1966, and she married her high school sweetheart in 1970. His name was Ernie Stewart. Ernie. I love old man names so much. (laughs) And whenever I read that, I was just like, oh, Ernie. So she was a Lansing Middle School science teacher, and she was 30 at the time that she went missing. And this was about two months after the Wendy disappearance on August 14th, 1978. She was walking in her neighborhood down the sidewalk near her home. She was almost home when she was run down and hit by a man in his car. Oh my gosh. When he finally like got to her, he got out of his uh, car, grabbed her, threw her in the back seat. And immediately began to stab and strangle her. And much like the first two victims, Christine was a petite woman with wavy shoulder length brown hair and big dark rimmed glasses. And because of how much she looked like the first two victims, she was immediately linked to the other murders. And then I'm going to kind of throw you through a loop. Because this last victim is nothing like the rest. So later the day of Chris's murder, a 14-year-old girl named Lisa went outside to yell at her 13-year-old brother, Randy, to come back into the house. He was fishing at a nearby pond. And so after yelling at him, saying, you know, it's time to come inside, uh, she walked back home and a man was waiting at her house, like near her front door. And he asked her, hey, is your father home? Because their house was just built, it was not unusual for contractors to come by. And so not knowing, you know, it's the 70s, she's like, oh, no, my dad's not home. Yeah. And so she told him that her when her father would be home, and he was like, oh, can I have a pencil and paper so I can write my name and number down for your father to call me back? Of course, she's like, yeah. So she goes inside. He follows her in. And she's digging through a drawer to get a pencil and paper for him. And that's when he came up behind her and held a knife to her throat. He then took her to her parents' room where he tied her up and raped her. And after he was done, he wrapped his belt around her neck to strangle her. And right as Lisa was about to pass out, the belt snapped. Like, it broke. So it was shortly after that that the man was caught off guard whenever Lisa's 13-year-old brother, Randy, Mm -hmm. came into the room and attacked him. Good. So thankfully, because of the belt breaking and Randy... Divine intervention. Holy moly. uh, Lisa was able to run out of the house and get help while Randy and the man were fighting in the house. And let me, like, reiterate that. This 14-year-old badass was able to untie her legs during this like brief, during the struggle between Randy and the man. Mm -hmm. She was able to untie her legs and she ran out of the house naked with her hands tied behind her back. Yeah. You do what you got to do. Yeah. Like I, I I can't imagine. I don't want to imagine ever being in that situation, but I have nothing but respect for this little girl. Because at the time, she's 14. She's a little girl. Mm -hmm. The intruder and Randy fought. And unfortunately, the intruder was able to get the upper hand. 
because once again, this is a fight between a grown ass man and a 13 year old child. Mm -hmm. And the intruder strangled Randy until he passed out. And then he stabbed Randy three times. Oh my gosh. So uh, Lisa was able to flag down a couple of cars and tell them what happened. And several people at that point had seen the man run out of the house. Thankfully, though, both Lisa and Randy survived. Oh, good. So now we are going to talk about Donald Jean Miller. If you did not know where this is going, <laughs> he is the killer and rapist. He is also called Michigan's Ted Bundy. Ooh. He was born on December 28th, 1954 in East Lansing. And this is where he was raised. So he lived there his entire life. There's nothing extraordinary about him. He was raised in a strict religious household and he had two sisters. Don was called a little bit of a loner growing up, just like his fiance had noticed. So growing up, he did not seem to have many friends and they say that it seemed like one of his sisters was his closest friend. A lot of people that didn't know him but knew him described him as being clean cut and polite. He was a devoutly religious youth pastor and he was majoring in criminal justice at Michigan State University. He even played the trombone in the marching band at MSU. During his college career, he was working as a security guard at a local company, which makes sense because he's majoring in criminal justice. Unfortunately for every person around him, Don had a deadly fear of rejection. He could not deal with it whatsoever. And just over 18 months, he murdered those four women because in his mind, they rejected him in one way or another. He was the main suspect in Martha Sue's murder. But like I said earlier, law enforcement couldn't get any, couldn't get the evidence that they needed to arrest him and charge him. And in a letter that he had written whenever he was in jail, he said, he said, untreated, I could, much like a block steam pipe, only stockpile so much anger, frustration, and over two, three years accumulation via repression. I exploded like a steak pipe on Martha Young and wrongfully took her life while at the same time crying out, the pain must stop. <laughs> My God, I wish I could undo all of this. You Which I'm just like, what bullshit, dude. Yeah. Like, if you're, you've got so much pent up anger, go to yoga or something. You don't need to yeah. kill anybody. Talk to someone about it. Like, you can't say, oh, I had so much anger and frustration and it just accumulated over two or three years and I just wrongfully took someone's life. Like, no, bitch. Sit down, shut up, stop. Um, and to link him with the second victim, Marita, he went to the same church as her. So they had gone to a lot of the same services. And I'm assuming because it's such a college town, the um, churches that are there are more tight-knit communities. The day that Marita was found, Wendy went missing, and Wendy went missing, Don was seen scrubbing the seats of his car. I wonder why. Maybe because he freaking killed someone. Mm -hmm. And the same day that Chris disappeared, an assistant prosecutor had gotten a phone call from an Eaton County 911 dispatcher that he was dating. And the reason why an assistant prosecutor got this phone call 
Um, the reason why he got this phone call was because someone had called 911 to report a man breaking and entering. This is the situation with Don and Lisa and Randy. Um, this, I literally just said that. Um, what made it so notable was that a witness was able to give the license plate number to the man that fled the home, and it was none other than Don Miller, who they were still looking into for Martha's murder. They were able to shortly arrest him, and this man continued to act completely innocent and said that he had no idea why he was being apprehended. <laughs> no idea. No idea. No, how could you suspect me, a good old religious youth pastor who is a college student and is working security? Like, I'm such a good boy. <laughs> but he also said um, at his trial, he, he claimed that he was insane and he had multiple personality disorder. But Don does not have multiple personalities. He is just a freaking sociopath. And he was able to manipulate doctors that in turn testified in his defense. Unfortunately, this is where things get even more upset and depressing. On July 13th, 1979, they gave him a plea deal. Don was to plead guilty on two counts of manslaughter. One for his ex-fiance. Manslaughter. Martin. Uh-huh. And the other for Chris. And in exchange for an insultingly short sentence, he had to show the police where his victim's bodies were. Because at this time, all they had was the second victim's body, Marita. Uh, they never charged him for the murders of Marita or Wendy, but he did take the police to their bodies. And um, so... I don't know why I do this, but I just keep going off script and saying things. And then like two bullets later is where what I said at that time. <laughs> so Martha, Sue, Wendy, and Christine were all classified as missing at this point, And their families were still looking for them. Like there are reports reports where they were genuinely shocked whenever they found out that they were one of Don's victims because they were like, we were still like looking for her on every street corner. Like we did not suspect that she was dead at this time. Wow. So Martha Sue was found in a park and the police said that they had done many searches there, but somehow they missed her body. She was found raped and strangled. He confessed that he killed her because she had told him that she did not love him anymore. Wendy was found in a brush-filled area where our Savior Lutheran Church now stands. And he claimed that he thought that she was making advances at him. And it triggered a homicidal reaction from him because of how much a religious man that he is. The same. This is the same religious man who murdered his ex. Yeah. Yeah. Um, okay. Uh -huh. One of the Ten Commandments, isn't it? Thou shalt not kill. <laughs> you know, I'm pretty sure. Like, God. I I just this man, this this monster, like, I don't know. I I was researching this case and I'm like, how? Like I know just they how? say like <laughs> don't 
try to understand these people because you genuinely can't. Mm -hmm. And unfortunately, in this case, I tried to understand what was going on. And at the end of the day, like, I just can't comprehend. No. Now, our school teacher, Chris, was found in a drainage ditch in Clinton County, not far from where Martha Sue was found. And the reason why Don killed her is that he thought that she was Martha Sue Young. And it was only after she was dead that he realized that the woman that he killed was one of his neighbors. Chris was his neighbor. He thought that the person he... <laughs> yeah. So he was literally he he driving was our... home. He was driving home one day. Did he forget? Did he forget and... that he already murdered Martha Sue? Well, while he was like murdering her, while he was stabbing her, he was asking her, like, how are you still alive? Oh, my God. Like, he was driving home. He saw her walking towards his house in Air Bunnies. And um, he was just like, what the hell? So he went, he fucking hit her with his car. And then he pulls her into the back seat and starts stabbing her and being like, Martha Sue, how are you still alive? And it was after, like, everything happened and he calmed down where he was like, oh, shit. Like, it's not Martha Sue, you dumbass. It's not Martha Sue. (laughs) So no one knows for sure why Don targeted Lisa, our final and surviving victim. But we do find out in the trial that he began sexually assaulting one of his sisters starting at the age of 15. Oh. So they think that at that point, Lisa fit in with his victim profile because mm-hmm. he was molesting his sister at such a young age. So Don was sentenced to 10 to 15 years for the manslaughter charges, and those were to be run concurrently. He was also charged with assault and rape, which sentenced him to another 30 to 50 years. And because of his plea deal, he was eligible for his first parole hearing only 10 years after he was sentenced to prison. Wow. Please tell me it was denied. (laughs) It, it was. It was. Okay. <laughs> so, like, this plea deal is, like, the Carla Homolka plea deal. Mm. Almost. Like, it's not as bad because she is out right now and he is in prison. But it's still, like, upsetting. And that's one reason why I wanted to do this case. Mm-hmm. So, thankfully, every single time that he has been up for parole, it has been denied almost immediately. The most recent time that he was denied parole was last year in 2021. Wow. Each time that he has been up for parole, Randy, who is Lisa's at the time 13-year-old brother, mm-hmm. he has gone to parole board officials and recounts his experience of the attack. Good. And he has said that he is more than willing to keep reliving the experience if that means that Don will stay behind bars. Wow. What a man. There's, yeah. Not Randy. Seriously. <laughs> And Chris's father said he shouldn't get out. Like they said, he is a serial killer and he'll probably do it again if he doesn't Mm -hmm. get out. Now, of course, because this dude is a fucking sociopath, he claims that he is rehabilitated, citing his strong religious ties, even though those did not stop the brutal attacks in the first (laughs) place. Like, at this point, my dude, you need to throw out the I'm a religious person because it's Mm -hmm. not doing you any favors. No, none. At all. So in 1994, 
Prison officials found a strangling device made from shoestring and barrel buttons in Don's cell. And there have been reports that he was, he did not like the female corrections officers. So some believe that the Garot, is it Garot or Garot? Uh, Garot, I think. Okay. Some believe that the Garot that he had was intended for the female corrections officers. Sounds rehabilitated to me. Yep. Heaven forbid. Heaven forbid a woman like have more power than him. Right. Heaven forbid. He was convicted, thankfully, of possessing a weapon in prison, which added an additional 20 to 40 years to his prison sentence. But the bullshit thing about this entire fucking case is that no matter what, Don will be released by 2031 after serving his sentence. After serving his prison time. How old will he, he be? 76. He'll be Are 76 the time that he's released. You can still, I, you're still functioning human at 76. Most people. And still likely to reoffend. Wow. Yeah. Oh, that's infuriating. It's so infuriating. And I, I can't believe few- they gave him manslaughter. Like what kind of plea deal? That is such a joke. Three people were dead. But they wanted to find those people. Like, they don't make plea deals unless they speak with the families beforehand. Okay. And I'm just hoping. Um, what's what's that lady's name? I can't remember what her name is. That uh, murdered Celine, Selena. Oh. Uh. <laughs> like, I I wanted to say Martha just because we have Martha here. But you like know famous how everyone, Selena, right? Yeah, famous Selena, the one that was murdered by her you know, supposed friend. Anyway, she's supposed to be released sometime soon. And I know there are communities of people waiting just for her to get out so they can beat the crap out of her. Yeah. So I'm hoping that we get a similar result in 2031 whenever Dawn gets out of prison. Good. Well, I can guarantee Randy will be first in line. Oh, I hope he is. <laughs> and I really hope that, you know, if somehow Don does die, <laughs> that the police would be like, oh, it looks like he just like slipped and fell and, oh, you know, shoot. broke his entire body. <laughs> totally like accidental death. No one's broke at fault his here. entire body. Yeah. <laughs> I'm with you. Me, uh, yes. Now, law enforcement officials, the victims and witnesses that had testified in his original trial in 1979 have all urged parole board officials not to grant parole because it is still believed that he is a danger to the community. Good. Lieutenant Scott Sexton of the East Lansing Police Department Investigation slash Detective Bureau has said that he is not in favor of Don's release. And he is quoted saying, and this is a long quote, so bear with Mm -hmm. me, guys. I I type up a little two or three paragraph letter saying, that from our training experience of people who are guilty and convicted of these types of crime, they have an extremely high recidivism rate. It is way higher than other crimes that people are released on parole for. Our consistent recommendation for him is to deny him parole. If he is released, we personally feel that it is a very high likely scenario that he would. Studies have shown that pedophiles, People who pursue young children as victims have a very high recidivism rate. The idea, too, that while in prison, he tacked on more time for himself by possessing a weapon. 
in prison, he is still making weapons and storing them himself, which leads us to think that the public would be in danger, particularly young children. Now, the Attorney General, Dana Nessel, is also, has also urged officials to deny Don's parole in, in, a letter to the parole in a letter to the parole board. In that letter, she says that she still believes that Don is a predator, and her direct quote is, the release of Don Miller will absolutely endanger this community from the moment he steps outside prison walls. The horrific details of his crimes are enough to prove that this man is where he belongs, behind bars, ensuring that he can never harm any person. Now, because he is eligible for parole, you know, he will be getting out at some point. Mm -hmm. There is a petition going around trying to get signatures to submit to the parole board asking that Don remain incarcerated. It was created by Sue and John Leahy. Sue used to work with Chris in a Sears toy department. And she's quoted saying, we were friends. And when she disappeared, we went on searches for her body because no one knew what happened to her. It was a very difficult chapter. Mm-hmm. Now, there is no online access to the petition yet. But a man named Patrick Congley, who went to school with Chris, said that if you would like to call him, he can make this available to you. I'm not going to put his number out yeah. on the podcast itself, but I will go ahead and include it in the um, social media posts that we have. Okay. So if it is something that you guys would like to contact him about, that's something that you would have to kind of search for and you just can't get from listening to us. Anyone that wants to write to the pro board about Don Miller can go to bit.ly backslash two nine capital P two Z is in Zulu L D. All right. And oh, one more thing. <laughs> Ron Sadler, he's a retired Eden County Sheriff Officer. <laughs> Let's try this again. His his ex title is so long. Okay, so Ron Sadler, a retired Eaton County Sheriff's Office sergeant, turned true crime author, is quoted saying There's a couple of generations between when this occurred and today, and people have forgotten who Don Miller is, and people have forgotten what Don Miller did. And Don Miller's going to get out of prison someday, and people need to know that. Good. Now I'm done. done. Yes. But yeah, so I mean, I never knew about Don Miller. No, I hadn't either. That's not a case that I've ever heard covered on any of the true crime podcasts that I listen to. And so researching this and finding out that there is a serial killer and rapist who is going to get out in nine years. That's not even that long. Oh, I hate that. Like, yes, he was, you know, sentenced to prison in, like, 79, but that is not long enough. No. Ugh. Dang. Well, I am taking us to just outside of East Lansing, actually. (laughs) I got a little bit nervous whenever you told me where you were at because I was like, that's really close to mine and mine didn't really happen like only in this city. It kind of happened in the area, but mm-hmm. we're good. I didn't, I did not do my case on Don Miller. Um, I, <laughs> I'm actually in Okamas, Michigan. So when I originally started researching on Michigan, I started with a completely different case, but I just did 
my case on Aaron um, Hernandez, and that one was pretty well known. And the case I was originally on in Michigan was also pretty well known. So mm-hmm. I wanted to pick one that was a little bit older. Mm-hmm. Um, we may still cover the other one in the future, so I don't want to completely go into details on it. But I will tell you that other one has a resolution, so that's good. This one does not. <sighs> <laughs> See, I was hoping that we would have a good resolution in your case because mine had a very shitty resolution. I mean, at least he's in jail, right? <sighs> For now. For now. <laughs> For the next nine years. Yeah. So, Okamas is nearly dead center in the southern part of Michigan. Um, it's, like I said, just five miles east of East Lansing. And the area was founded in 1839 as a farming community and a trading point with the Ojibwe tribes. Ooh. So, 20 years later... Ojibwe chief John Okamis passed away and they renamed the settlement from Hamilton to Okamis in his honor, meaning little chief. The population of Okamis today is around 24,000. In 1990, it was, wasn't a whole lot less. It was still around um, 20,000, had 20,216. The area Okamis is located is kind of a big suburb of Lansing. Um, If you look on a map, it's all kind of just kind of Lansing spreads out. So like I said, not everything in this case takes place in Okamas, but it is where a big portion of it does. <laughs> um, Paige Marie Renkowski was born on February 2nd, 1960 in Lansing, Michigan. Her parents, Carl and Artis, had four daughters. Paige was the second oldest. I come from a family of four girls, so it spoke to me. And I'm the second <laughs> oldest. <laughs> Um, when Paige was young, their family lived in Haslett, Michigan, which is only about a mile north of Okamas, so they have always been in the area. Uh, they moved to Okamas when Paige was going into middle school. In her teens, Paige did a little bit of modeling and loved working with kids. Like, oh, wow. she was the neighborhood babysitter. She Aww. was known all around the area as an excellent babysitter, like... Like, in the movies, like, the coveted babysitter. (laughs) It's exactly what she was. Everybody wanted her um, to babysit their kids. She always talked about wanting to be a mom and get married. And she had actually earned her associate's degree in early childhood education and had gotten her foot in the door by working as a substitute teacher at a child care center in Lansing. Paige's family and everyone who knew her said she was the family clown and loved to make people laugh. She had tons of friends and was the type of personality who could literally get along with anyone. Like, she could talk to a brick wall. With the way I'm describing Paige, I'm sure you have all kind of caught on that she is unfortunately the victim in our case. Um, Paige's case is one of the longest running cold cases in all of Michigan. Oh, wow. Yes. In 1988, Paige met Steve... Forgive me on this last name, Steve. Deb Brabander. D Brabander. <laughs> you want to spell that for our listeners? It is capital D E, capital B R A B A N D E R. It's like Deborah Bander. Deborah well, Bander. It's going to be D and then Brabander. D Brabander. Yeah. D Brabander. Okay. Ooh. Yeah, yeah. I have uh, my family last name is McEwen, mm-hmm. and that's M C, and then 
like that's the Mick and mm-hmm. then QN. Uh, the couple would get engaged and would be living together in Lansing while planning their wedding for November of 1990. Everything Paige had dreamed of was in motion. She was getting married. She was going to start her family. Um, she'd even started the process of obtaining licensure to run a daycare center out of she and Steve's home after their Aww. wedding. I know. So everything was coming together for her. Yes. She, like everything was going. <sighs> Memorial Day weekend of 1990, Paige's mother, Artis, was planning to tri- plan had planned a trip to visit one of her other daughters, Michelle, who was living in Atlanta at the time. Paige, being the ray of sunshine she was to everyone around her, offered to drive her mom an hour and a half to the airport in Detroit. Mm-hmm. Um, Artis said Paige made the drive fly by because she was so excited to tell her all of the details that they'd been working on for the wedding. It was only six months away at this point. So she talked nonstop from the moment they got in the car until the moment she dropped her off at the airport. That's so wholesome. I know. She said Paige was so excited to marry Steve and for their future together. She was, like I said, she was finally getting this life she had always dreamed of and was effortlessly happy Mm. with her life. They arrived to Detroit Metro Airport at 11.30 a.m. Paige said goodbye to her mother, and artists would never see her daughter alive again. Now, this was not the only plan Paige had for the day. She had planned to drive back to the Okamas area, specifically to the ball field where Steve had a softball game that night. So she had that. Everyone knew it. That was her plan. She was going to drop her mom off at the airport and then drive straight back to Okamas to watch Steve play ball. He was the first person to realize that something was out of the ordinary with Paige. If she said she was going to be somewhere, she would be there. And if not, she would make, she would have done everything she could to make sure he knew that she wasn't going to make it. Mm -hmm. Um, So when he returned to their home after softball game, which she didn't show up to, Steve was immediately concerned because not only had he not heard from Paige, She was not at their home either. As the evening progressed, he still had not heard from her and he decided he needed to check on her or at least check the last place he knew she had been that day. So he drove over to Artis and Carl's home um, because he knew she was taking Artis to the airport. So outside, when he pulled up to the house, he saw Paige's red sports car. Now, we would think like, This would be a sigh of relief because, okay, Paige's car is here. Um, But the house was completely dark. And Steve knew that Paige had actually planned to drive Artis's car to the airport instead because it had more room. Oh, no. So at this point, he'd had enough of waiting and was going to get some answers. He was afraid something happened to her. I mean, maybe she'd gotten sick on the way home and decided to rest before driving back to their house. Maybe she'd walked in on a home invasion or artist got hurt. Who knew? You know, he had no idea at this point. So he actually broke into Artis's home, um, hoping to find some sign of Paige. The house was completely empty and it was obvious that Paige had not been there. Like, uh, I could just imagine how stomach dropping that would be like that one sliver of hope you have left and you just walk inside and there's nothing. So in the completely pitch black house, there was one light. It was the blinking red light of the answering machine. Thinking it could have been a message from Paige, that sliver of hope came back and he pressed play. 
he did not know what to expect to hear on that line. It was not a message from Paige. The voicemail was left by the Livingston County Sheriff's Department. And it would be the only confirmation he needed that something had bad had happened to Paige. So the dispatch on the other end was actually, it was a pleasant call. Um, They were calling to let artists know that her 1986 Oldsmobile Cutlass had been parked on the side of the Interstate 96 near the exit of Fowlerville. And they were just letting her know that they had towed the vehicle to the sheriff's department and it was an impound until she was able to pick it up. So to police, seeing the car didn't raise any alarms. I mean, cars get abandoned all the time for all kinds of reasons. Normally, they run out of gas, they break down, flat tires. Um, For the safety of other drivers, as long as the vehicle isn't showing any, you know, blatant evidence that there had been a crime, they're going to tow it and get it off of the road so that people are safe. Mm -hmm. Steve, however, he knew that if Paige had not been found with the car, something had to have happened to her. He immediately called Art- Artis, who he'd already spoken to by this point, but called her back, let her know this is what the message said. Um, but at this point, she's already in Atlanta. So he told her what was going on, hung up with her, called the, to report Paige missing. And Artis, being, being a mama, <laughs> was like, I need to get home right now. But it was Memorial Day weekend in 1990. Oh, so right now we have an endless stream of flights. I mean, you can pretty much get a flight to where you need to go. It's going to cost you an arm and a leg if it's last minute, but you're going to get it. Mm-hmm. In 1990, that wasn't the case. If the flights mm-hmm. were booked, flights were booked. So she wasn't able to get a flight and they were 12 hours away. So one of Paige's other sisters, Tammy, lived much closer. She was in Chicago and was fortunate enough to work for a man who happened to have a private plane who agreed to send it to Atlanta to pick Artis and Michelle up and bring them back to Detroit. So they made it back to, they made it back to Michigan. Um, Once they made it back, she, Artis had a chance to speak to police and they found out more information about Paige's day and how it was laid out. Mm -hmm. She told police Paige had planned to spend the afternoon with a friend and her two kids before heading back to Okamas. So this gave them a timeline. The friend lived in Canton, Michigan, which was only about 25 minutes from the airport. So it was the perfect opportunity to catch up, spend some much needed time together. The friend confirmed that Paige had arrived about 30 minutes after dropping Artis off, which lines up with how far it was away. Mm -hmm. And then the four of them spent the afternoon at a park in the area. Paige left about 2.20 p.m. to head back to Okamas for Steve's softball game, just like planned. And... What happened between 2.20 and 3.30 where when her car was first spotted is unknown. We assume she was driving <laughs> between that time. Mm-hmm. Um, the man who reported the Oldsmobile had driven through the section of I-96 earlier in the day, like I mentioned, around 3.30. And he saw the car sitting there but didn't think anything of it. Again, cars are abandoned for all kinds of re- reasons. Majority of the time, it's not a sinister situation. It's just... Your car broke down. Mm -hmm. The reason he decided to report it was because he drove back through the same area later that evening around 8 p.m. And the car was still sitting there in the exact same spot. Mm -hmm. So he assumed it was abandoned at that point and called it in. Police arrived shortly after to take a look and they found the car empty running with the headlights on. Oh, gosh. Yes. 
So why this didn't immediately raise alarm for them, I don't know. Like if I see a car that's been sitting on the side of the road for five hours running, I'd probably think twice about it. (laughs) Yeah. That's not normal. Um, Assuming it truly was abandoned, like the caller had stated, police decided they needed to get it off the road and had it towed, as we know, to the Livingston Police Department. Mm -hmm. When Steve called in a little bit later that night to report Paige missing, they were immediately able to connect the dots um, and they knew that the Oldsmobile was likely a crime scene. Mm -hmm. So they did secure it and they searched the vehicle. They found Paige's purse, ID, and wallet, which seemed to be missing nothing. The shoes she had been wearing earlier that day were in the car, as well as an open bottle of beer. Now, I thought of shoes and was immediately alarmed, like, where's she going without her shoes kind of thing. Yeah, that's (laughs) what I was thinking. (laughs) Right. But the way her shoes were found made me feel differently. So they were kind of, like, tucked back under the driver's seat, like she had taken them off while she was driving. And I do that same thing, like especially in long car rides, I'll take my shoes off and I'll either put them under that seat so they're not by my feet or I'll put them along the door so that that I can still grab them when I stop. Mm -hmm. So that part didn't raise alarm. But then the beer also made me think like, why is there a beer in the car? So I did some research on this. So DUI laws were established in the 70s, um, but many states didn't have the same legal limits for driving under the influence. And open container laws didn't actually come around until the late 90s. So one beer on the road was like, was, it was not a big deal. Like it was just, it is what it is. Like don't get drunk and drive, but having a beer on the road, like a roadie was fine. (laughs) Um, This wasn't the only part that made me think. When had she even gotten that beer? Because there's not a whole lot of time between 2.20 and 3.30. On I-96 from Griffin Park, where she had spent the afternoon with her friend, to Fowlerville or near the Fowlerville exit would have been about a 50-minute drive. So Paige left the park at 2.20 and was seen by the other driver for the first time around 3.30. Not a huge discrepancy of time, but, you know, traffic could have slowed her down. Maybe she had a stop, whatever. Mm -hmm. Well, once news about a missing person had started to spread, investigators were following any leads that came their way. And a clerk from the Cracker Barrel in Canton recognized the woman that everyone was looking for. The clerk said that Paige had stopped in the store around 2.30 on the day she disappeared and purchased one 40-ounce bottle of Miller Lite, which was the beer that they found in the car. 40 ounces? (laughs) No, she got herself a 40. Oh, my God. Um, The clerk said she knew it was the same person because she remembers carding her and thinking she looked much younger than she actually was, which she did. She looked very young, and she was 30. Um, She also said she had complimented Paige on the necklace she'd been wearing. After this stop at Cracker Barrel, investigators have no idea why Paige would have needed to stop again just an hour later. I mentioned the Oldsmobile had been running whenever police had towed it. It was in perfect shape, mechanically. Like, it had plenty of gas in the tank, um, especially to get her back to Okamas. There was no visible exterior markings indicating that she'd been in a wreck. Nothing. Like, the car was fine. The only thing they have to go off is that Wow, why did I talk like that? <laughs> because you're pregnant and today is the day. Woo. 
Um, the only thing they have to go off is that Paige's family and friends, everyone who knew her, all said that she very likely would have stopped if she had seen someone she knew or was familiar with. But they adamantly state that she would not have stopped if it were a stranger. So we're out of the sketchy 70s. So she wasn't offering rides or anything like that. She wasn't known to offer rides to anyone mm -hmm. um, except if it was family or friends. And like I said, her family, like to this day, firmly stands that she would not have stopped for a complete stranger. Yeah. This leads me back to our friend who called in Paige's car on the side of the road and exactly why it caught his eye. Mm -hmm. Unless I drive past the same car every single day, like if it's been parked there for a week, I really don't notice cars or especially, especially like if it's the same car. Yeah. Sometimes I'll think like, oh, there was a car there yesterday kind of thing. But I, I kind of zone out when I drive. So I admittedly don't notice those things. Um, but when this man drove by that evening, he was concerned because earlier that day, he'd not only seen the car, he'd seen Paige as well. Oh. Yes. Now, he didn't observe much about what she was doing. He was just driving by. But he was able to confirm that she was there standing outside of her vehicle talking to a man. Yes. Oh. I can totally see why now this would have raised alarm. Because five hours later, the car is there and she is not. Mm-hmm. With this information, police were able to ask the public for any similar information or encounters on I-96. Over 10 eyewitnesses came in reporting that they'd also seen Paige standing next to the Oldsmobile around 3.15 that day. According to most of these witnesses, there was a dark red or maroon minivan parked behind Paige's Oldsmobile, and the assumed driver of this van was standing outside talking to Paige. He was identified as a black male, 20 to 30 years old, medium build, and around six feet tall. They also said he appeared to be well-groomed and dressed. A few of the witnesses also reported seeing a second man sitting inside of the van, but did not have any more information about his description. Six different sketches were taken and released of this man. <laughs> we can assume it's all this man, but honestly, they all look different to me. Like, there's a few that are similar with like very differing things. But mm -hmm. one thing that I notice um, on all of them is that they have, the man has a mustache and a short crew cut. So, yeah. and then maybe even a receding hairline. Other than that, they look different. Other drivers yeah. thought they'd seen Paige as well. One said they thought they saw Paige's car speeding down I-96 being followed by another car. Another said they saw her talking to a man and throwing her arms up like she was frustrated and then the man calmly placing his hand on her shoulder. Another report said, probably the most chilling of them all, said that they saw Paige being led to the back of the van by this man. Oh gosh, that yeah. is terrifying. So Paige disappeared on Thursday of Memorial Day weekend. So I-96 was packed. I mean, it was very busy. Um, all of these accounts could be accurate, but it could very likely be that one of these is the last time that she was ever seen. Mm -hmm. So by the following Tuesday, police had put together a team of detectives and volunteers to search the area where Paige's car had been found. Nine different teams of tracking dogs searched a 500 acre um, area off the side of I-96. There were people mm -hmm. on foot combing the ground and even a helicopter scanning above. They found nothing 
Nothing. Paige's friends and family worked 24-7 for weeks. The setup, they set up a makeshift command center in Carl and Artis's home and even opened a second phone line to act as like a tip line or just to communicate with people who wanted to know more about the case because they hoped that, you know, if Paige had a chance to call or was able to call, that she would call them. So they had to leave that line open. In addition to her family, there were 12 different agencies working on her case, including the FBI. In the first week alone, there were more than 300 leads. Holy cow. I know. (laughs) Um, Complete strangers were volunteering to help spread the word about Paige's disappearance, and people from all over Michigan, Ohio, Indiana, and Minnesota printed and distributed thousands of posters. Her family was able to raise $6,000 to offer as a reward, and with the number of tips coming in, um, the... Crime Stopper, I don't know if it was called Crime Stoppers in the 70s, but basically the Crime Stoppers back then uh, was able to raise this to 25000 This investigation went strong for a while, but as tips started becoming less and less, even more people started to step up and help. An advertising company out of Lansing donated 20 billboards along the major highways through Detroit, Lansing, Ann Arbor, and Flint so that her missing poster could be publicly displayed. Oh, Wow. Yeah, it helped for like a second, but none of the tips could be confirmed. Yeah. All throughout that summer of 1990, more than a thousand churches held vigils in Paige's honor. Three movie theaters in Lansing and 19 in Detroit started showing her picture before every movie they played. Oh, wow. I know. I had never heard of of a case doing that, but how, like, how effective not so much yeah. now because movies are kind of fading out, which makes me really sad because I love going to the movie theater. Yeah. But back then, movies were huge. So I'm sure that brought in tons of people. At least I've seen it. Yeah. Um, even that fall, the efforts remained strong. A national television program at the time called Missing Reward created a reenactment of the day Paige vanished to hopefully get people interested in her case again. Unfortunately, like most missing person cases, the investigation couldn't stay strong forever. So in November of 1990, tip lines had gone completely silent. There were no more leads to follow up on. It was also the beginning of hunting season. So any evidence that had been missed during the ground search was about to be disturbed by over 700,000 people who hunt the area every year. Yeah. Now, this could be good or bad, though. Like, Bad because obviously if anything was out there, it was likely going to be contaminated or moved or never found. But also good because this was now 700,000 sets of eyes that would be canvassing the area every day for an entire season. So police did put a notice out to all Michigan hunters asking them to keep an eye out for anything out of the ordinary. A year later, Paige's family spoke to reporters saying how hard that one year had been. Steve was quoted as saying, you can't start to recover because you don't know what to recover from. Yeah. Yeah. Carl Page's dad had actually suffered a stress-induced seizure just shortly after her uh, disappearance, and he did recover. Good. He was a a retired police officer, so his knowledge of these types of cases made him believe that Page was no longer alive. Um, But he still hoped for some kind of lead that would at least help them bring her home. Yeah. In 1999, a new cold case task force called New Hope was created to focus on high-profile cases in the area, and they did receive new tips, and most of them indicated that Paige had been murdered. 
So the New Hope team also reinvestigated all over a thousand tips that they had received since day one. They announced um, in May 2001, they announced that they had a suspect but released no information on him because he was incarcerated for unrelated charges. In June 2002, they indicated that they had identified a second person who they believed to be involved in Paige's abduction and likely murder and also stated that they had information that led them to believe it was a completely random act. Which kind of brings us all back to why the heck did Paige stop? Like, yeah, because her parents said that she wouldn't right. if she didn't know the people. Right. Um, she even told kids, so going off of that, she even would tell the kids that she babysat never to talk to strangers, never to approach strangers, if, she, if they were approached by strangers, to run away. So, like, stranger danger was, like, it in Paige's life. Yeah. And so she would have never done that. The only thing that they can consider maybe happened that if this driver of the maroon minivan had impersonated a police officer and pretended to pull her over, she would have followed the rule. Oh, in the late there was a lot of that going yes, on. Yes, in the late 1980s, there were multiple incidents reported in this area of people impersonating police officers and showing fake badges. What? Yes. So it can't be confirmed that this is what happened because they don't know. But her family says that 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 situation is the only way that she would have stopped and willingly gotten out of her car, which is what appeared to happen. In 2011, police received an anonymous letter that included a hand-drawn, very detailed map of where Paige's body was buried. They found nothing in that area nor the two other sites they were that where they used ground penetrating radar they also used cadaver dogs which hit on an area near Fowlerville which is where her car was found again they found nothing Paige's loved ones are certain she was abducted and likely murdered but as her dad stated just a year after her disappearance they're still holding out hope that someone will have information regarding the location of her remains so she can be brought home Carl passed away in 1994, and Paige's mother, Artis, passed away in 2000. Excuse me. Um, and Paige's mother, Artis, passed away in 2017. But the rest of her family is still actively searching for her all these years later. There's a profile on Paige through the CharlieProject.org, and it states: Missing since May 24, 1990, age 30, disappeared from Fowlerville, Michigan, classified as endangered missing. Female, white, born February 2nd, 1960. She would have just turned 62 this year. Five foot six inches, 125 pounds, wearing a white silk blouse, multicolored floral silk pants, and a long beaded necklace. Side note, this outfit was adorable. It sounds adorable. <laughs> I'm just like picturing yes. it in my head, like perfect 90s outfit. We just need some butterfly clips. Yes, uh, we're going to post it as one of the pictures um, on this case, but it then says she's a Caucasian male, blonde hair, blue eyes. She has surgical scars on her right leg, right arm, and right elbow. Two Did surgical you say she was screws. a Caucasian male? Did I? Caucasian I female. Did. She's definitely female, everyone. If I said male, I'm sorry. <laughs> um. She, like I was saying, she has surgical scars on her right leg, right arm, and right elbow, and two surgical screws in her left knee, 
and a total knee replacement on the right knee. So these are very significant surgeries. Like, obviously, if we're talking about remains, you're probably not going to see the scars from the outside. But Mm -hmm. those screws and that knee replacement are going to still be there a thousand percent. Paige's niece, Nicole, wasn't even born when Paige went missing, but she spoke to an NBC reporter in 2019 saying that they never stopped talking about Paige all throughout her entire life. Their family never stopped advocating for her, informing others of stranger danger. And Nicole is now in criminal justice herself. So this clearly, like, even though she never knew her aunt, she, like, this made an impact on her whole life. Yeah. Michelle said their family will never give up on her. They'll never stop looking. So if you have any information about Paige's disappearance, the case is still very much active. And you can call the Livingston County Sheriff's Department at 517-546-2440 or the Michigan State Police at 810-227-1149. And that is one of Michigan's oldest cold cases. I mean, just finding remains would be amazing yeah especially at this point i know i mean we're so many years later we're over 30 years later yeah 32 years almost Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. yep it's crazy all right so you have another missing person for us in michigan unfortunately why why all these missing people because people go missing and this one is a little it's not upsetting but the person that we're looking for is legally blind and has dementia oh so we're looking so sad i know his wife is still looking for him so police and his wife uh went help in finding a missing 76 year old man his name is norman crawford he was left at a detroit hospital at the 2700 block of West Grand Boulevard and did not return home. And once again, this is in Detroit, Michigan. He was last seen wearing a Vietnam veteran skull cap with gold lettering and a dark colored coat, tan gloves, gray sweatpants, and black tennis shoes. Aww. Like he said, his wife told police that he is legally blind and has dementia. So a description of him, he's about 140 pounds, about 5'5". Five, five. He's bald with a black and gray mustache. Oh, if anyone happens to see him, please, please, please contact the Detroit police department at 313-596-5301 or crime stoppers at 1-800-SPEAK-UP. So this was published on January 21st and I have not found anything about him being found yet. He's just a little pawpaw. He's such a bubble. Like, he just looks so sweet in this picture that they posted of him. Well, everybody, thanks for coming along to Michigan with us. We are into Minnesota next, and I'm so excited. I'm just (laughs) warning you, the case I'm bringing you is long, and I love it. (laughs) It's in my favorite place in the whole state. Probably one of my favorite places in all of the U.S., so I know I can't wait to hear about it (laughs) so until then follow us and support us on patreon we are killer country podcast on patreon you can find us on facebook where you can find uh case pictures of the day we are killer country (laughs) dot pot 
killercountry.podcast at gmail.net. <laughs> we are facebook.com backslash killercountrypodcast. We are also on Instagram for those case pictures, and we are at Killer Country Podcast. I just about forgot that we have an Instagram. Awesome. And uh, you can send us your case recommendations, any of your missing persons. You are more than welcome just to send us a message containing your favorite color. You can send <laughs> everything to killercountrypodcast at gmail.com. All right. And we are into the heart of the midwest i think i think it's the heart <laughs> we can we can say that i really like <laughs> so i don't want to offend you but there's this lady that i follow <laughs> don't give me that look anytime anybody starts a sentence with i don't mean to offend you <laughs> no it's, it's not i don't mean to it's i don't want to okay but so i follow this, you i got you <laughs> i follow this lady on tiktok and like Every time that she comes across my Facebook or my TikTok, I just want to like share her to you. She's like that Midwestern mom mm -hmm. and she uh, makes Minnesotan salads. <laughs> yeah. Snicker salad. And if you haven't had it, <laughs> you're missing out. And I just want to send you everything and be like, is this for real? Like, do people actually make this? Yeah. I need to make you, I, I should make that for you. I'm going to make that whenever the babies come because I'm making you some freezer meals. So you're going to get a tater tot hot dish Ooh. and some snicker salad. Yes. I So I was actually talking with one of my girlfriends about it today. Um, Nick and I are talking about buying a deep freezer mm. just so we can get a ton of like pre-cooked meals and like not pre-cooked meals, but like um, casserole dishes. Yeah. And I'm planning on spending my last couple of, excuse me, weeks before he comes just making those for myself, making them for you. I don't have any other pregnant friends in the area that I can make them for. Yeah. But I'm doing the same thing. I have to clean my deep freezer out first. I need to I get that first. job. Well, all right, friend. Bye, guys. I'll see you whenever we're in Minnesota. Bye.